One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the green pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, He gave me six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. That's uh, Ruth chapter 3. We're, we're, we're going to be there this morning, so if you want to grab one of the Bibles, if you don't have your own, you can grab one at the lobby and go to page 411. If you have your own, you can turn to Ruth 3. I, I, I just want to, I, I've really enjoyed this series. Um, I'm going to recap a little bit of, of chapter 1 and chapter 2 without going into a terrible amount of detail. Um, as you understand and remember, Elimelech was the fellow who seemed to be like he was going to be the main character in the story from the beginning of Ruth chapter 1. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. Um, so there's a problem in the land, there's a famine in the land, and now Elimelech has to make a decision And so the decision he makes is that he's going to move his wife, Naomi, whose name means lovely or sweetness or buttercup or something like that. Uh, He's going to move his wife, Naomi, and their children, Malon and Kilion, whose names mean sickly and dying, or as we've used, pneumonia and leukemia. And he's going to move his family to the place of Moab in order to make sure that there's enough bread for him. So Elimelech, who left Bethlehem so he wouldn't die, suddenly dies. And now Naomi is left without a husband. She's now a, a widow in a foreign land, but it's okay. She still has her two boys, Malon and Chilion, and then, 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 then he mar- she marries them off to Moabite women, and, and, and it goes about 10 years, and then the unthinkable occurs, and both boys die. 
So now Ruth is in a foreign land as a widow. She has lost both of her boys, so now there is no understanding of where her provision is going to come from. So now she is living in this place of darkness with no provision, no protection, in a foreign and strange land. But God intervenes, and God breaks the famine back in Bethlehem, and Naomi hears it, and she begins heading to Bethlehem with her two daughters-in-law, and on the way, she stops long enough to say to them, listen, don't, turn back, ladies, turn back, don't come with me. Why would you come with me? I don't have any more sons. You can't possibly marry one of my boys. Even if I was to, to be married tonight and have a child in nine months, are you going to wait until they grow up to marry them? No, I can't provide for you. Go home, go back to your moms, go back to your dads, go back to Moab. And, and Oprah, I did it. I knew I was going to do that. Orpah, not Oprah. I felt it coming out and couldn't stop it. <laughs> well, it only took three weeks. That's not bad. Orpah, not Oprah. Orpah listened to her mother-in-law and returned home, but not Ruth, because Ruth said, absolutely not. You are my mother-in-law, and where you go, I go. Where you rest, I will rest. Where you lay your head, I will lay my head. And, and, and your God will be my God, and I will, when you die, I, where you die, I will die, and, and, and that's, that's all there is to it. I am with you, and Naomi doesn't push. She understands that Ruth is going to be somewhat obstinate about this, and, and rightly so. And so they continue the journey back to Bethlehem, and as they come into Bethlehem, Naomi's old friends, who knew her back in the day when she was married to Elimelech, see her come in, and now, now, now Naomi's friends begin to whisper to each other, hey, 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 you seen Naomi? kind of crazy how that all happened. I mean, Naomi, hey, Naomi's in town. Does that, is that really Naomi? And Naomi overhears it and says, stop calling me Naomi. Don't call me lovely anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. Call me bitter, not lovely. Call me bitter. Because when I left here, I left here full. Husband, two sons. Yes, they were trying to find bread, but she was full. But God has brought me back here empty, with nothing. Which was somewhat comical because standing next to her was a daughter-in-law who had committed her life to being with her forever. She's standing in Bethlehem where the famine had been broken and now there was bread provided for her family. Bethlehem, the place that if you look forward in the, the next thousand years is going to become an incredibly prevalent place in Israel's history. So she overstated her case a little bit. And as we examine chapter one, the big point that we landed on is this. God is faithfully loving and providentially caring for his people at all times, even when it's dark. You get to chapter two, at the beginning of chapter two, Ruth and Naomi, you picture them sitting in a room being very hungry and Ruth saying, Naomi, mom, mom, hey mom, let me just go out. Mom, let me go get some food. Let me go glean, which is to go through one of the fields of the farms and to pick up some of the scraps of the leftovers that the farmers had left. And so, so they, they, Naomi says, fine, go. And so Ruth goes, and, and out of all the fields, she just happens to end up in Boaz's field. Just, just coincidence, pure coincidence, she would end up in big, bad Boaz's field. And it just so happens that while she's there gleaning, big bad Boaz rolls up in his pickup truck and steps out. And you remember the, the interaction between he and his, 
his, his uh, family of, of, of employees, he says, the Lord be with you. And his employees stop what they're doing and they push back and they're like, the Lord bless you. I mean, the man of integrity and character, the guys didn't make fun of him when he stopped and said, hey, the Lord be with you. I mean, they, they jumped right back in. And, and what we begin to see in the, in the life and the character of Boaz is a man with integrity in this way. He gets out of his truck, he does the greeting, he looks out and he sees all of his employees and then he notices one person who looks different. Who's that? He asks the foreman, who's that girl? And and the foreman says, okay, uh, that's the the, the Moabite. We've heard about her. And she showed up and she asked permission to glean. She didn't have to ask permission to glean. It was her legal right. But she still, she was kind enough to ask permission to glean. And not only that, she was so not bashful. She had decided, I'm going to to ask if I can not just stay on the outside of the farm, but can I walk through the the middle of the farm? Can I be among the farmers and the the men who are using their sickles to cut down the the, the crops? Can I walk among them and get a little extra? I need as much as I can get. And then you're not going to believe this, Boaz. She is a hard worker. She's been here since dawn and she has worked all day with the only one small break back at the shelter. And Boaz approaches her. Says, you are favored in my eyes. Don't go glean in anybody else's field. You stay here in my field and we will take care of you. So much so that I have instructed my young men not to touch you. The first sexual harassment policy in Scripture. And what I love about that is you get the sense from Boaz. I mean, I've been calling him Big Bad Boaz because that's in my head. I'm telling you, I close my eyes and I think about it. He is the, he's a man. And some of you saw this on Facebook last week. So I made the comment last week that Big Bad Boaz is such a dude. He's the dude's dude. He never listened to Justin Bieber on purpose or Taylor Swift. I went to study in Facebook and I am not lying. They played every Taylor Swift song at one after another at Starbucks. So I'm waiting, because I, I made the comment about Bieber, too, so I'm looking over my shoulder for the Biebs to show up, and that would be just my luck. It was funny, when I first said that nobody, he, Boaz didn't listen to Justin Bieber on purpose, my, daughter's, my daughter was like, hey, Dad, nobody listens to Justin Bieber on purpose. Um, I would agree with that. So anyway, <clears throat> so, so he steps out, and he's, he's going to be clear with his men, you leave her alone, there's something there, they have a lunch, and Boaz, the boss, not an employee, not a servant, but the boss, hands her her food to take care of her. She goes home with 30 pounds of barley, which is a hefty load to carry down the street. And she walks in the door, and and you get the idea. Naomi's, I don't know, she's watching her soaps. I don't know what she's doing. But Naomi looks up, and she's like, whoa, where have you been all day? What, what, how did you, what, you got to explain. And Ruth says, you're not going to believe it. I met the nicest guy. I've been in Boaz's field all day long, gleaning. And he said I can work with his servant girls. So I have a job for the next six or seven weeks. And now suddenly we find that that coincidence of Ruth just showing up in the right place at the right time, Boaz just happening to stop by at the right place at the right time is no longer a coincidence. It's a picture of God's faithful love and providential care for his people even though it may seem like we're in the midst of a coincidence. That gets us to chapter 3, when, when, when the season of harvest is done. And so remember, Ruth had a temporary job. Six or seven weeks, she could work with the servant girls. And, and now the six or seven weeks are up. 
And so you got Naomi sitting at home. She's been watching her daughter-in-law go to work every day, come back probably talking about Boaz the whole time. And now all of a sudden it's over. It's done. She's not going to work. She may never see him again. And, and you can see the wheels in Naomi's head begin to, to turn and she comes up with a plan. And it starts in verse one and she says, Ruth, I need to find a home for you where you're gonna be provided for. I've, she, I mean, Naomi felt responsible for Ruth this whole time. We see that when they're leaving uh, Moab and she has the conversation with her. But, but now, now she's got a plan. So what is Naomi's plan? Well, we see it being revealed beginning in, t- in verse 3. She says, Ruth, this is what I want you to do. I want you to wash, I want you to put on perfume, and I want you to get dressed in your best clothes. So, so very practical. I mean, we're talking, this is pragmatic. She said, okay, Ruth, this is what I want you to do. I want you to, to get ready for a date. I want you to wash. That word wash actually isn't just talking about go wash behind your ears. The idea is the same washing that would happen for a bride just before her wedding night. Go wash. Splash on some perfume. Midnight Moabite or Moabite madness or Moabite eau de parfum or Moabitess number five. Um, I worked more on that than any other part of the message this week. I just want to, didn't want to get to that place or mess it up, but... So she splashes on the perfume and she's all smelling nice. And then she said, now I want you to go and put on your best clothes. I want you to change out of that funkified servant outfit you've been wearing when you go to the fields. Because he's never seen you as anything but a servant. I want you to dress up. And so now he's going to see her not just as a farmhand and also something else is going to change about her. No longer is she a mourning widow. Now she is a young lady. So I want you to wash, I want you to put on perfume, I want you to get dressed into your best clothes, and then, verse 3, I want you to go down to the threshing floor. So the idea is, down where, by Boaz's farm, there would be a a hill, we talked about last week, a hill with a a hard top on it, and actually I found out this week that most of the threshing floors uh, would put stone up on top so that when they they threshed or winnowed the grain, that no dirt would get into it, which is, that makes sense, and so they would bring it up top and they would would stomp on the, the, the stalks and they would beat on them and they would run over them with animals or with with vehicles of some type, and then they would take their pitchfork and they would toss it up in the air, and they would do this oftentimes in the evening because there was a consistent wind there. And so they would toss it up there, and the wind would carry the chaff away. It would carry away the, 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 the crust. It would carry away all the extra stuff, and the kernel would fall to the threshing floor. They would then take that kernel and pile it up into, into stacks. Now, you've got to understand this. This threshing stuff is hard work, but it was within the context of a party. Because what they're doing in that moment is celebrating God's provision for them next to the piles of God's provision for them. So while they worked threshing and winnowing, while they, while they worked at this job, they were dancing, they were eating, they were drinking, they were laughing, there was music. I mean, there was just a, 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 an atmosphere of celebration because of God's gift of goodness to them. And that is something, just a small aside, that is something we need to do better. Why do our celebrations, why are they limited to birthdays and Christmas? But Thanksgiving a little bit, right? Man, we should, this is going to sound interesting, we should party. (laughs) We should celebrate. If there is a group of people in the world who have something to celebrate, who else but the church? So we should celebrate better. Find more opportunities to celebrate the good gifts that God has given to you. Stop being a bump on the log. 
And it's crazy to me, but we pout so much. Uh, life is hard. It's the Eeyore complex, and Christians tend to carry that, when instead a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ should be like, yeah, let's slay the fatted calf. Okay, good. I expect to be invited to some parties now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just joking. Just kidding. Let's celebrate this. Now, here's, here's an interesting part, something we need to consider. The celebration that's happening on the threshing floor with these people is going to be so much sweeter for this one because they are coming out of a famine where there was nothing. And now their eyes are like, look what God has given to us. What good and precious gifts. When the threshing process would be finished, one of the servants would pull the graveyard shift. One of the servants would, everybody else would be done, they'd clean up from the party, they would all be going home. One servant would stay with the grain and actually sleep on the threshing floor right next to the grain so no thieves would come in and, and, and steal things. So that, that servant acted kind of like a, a security guard, but not in Boaz's company. And yeah, no servant does that. The boss is going to do that. So Boaz is the one who's taking the midnight shift. And Naomi was aware of that in verse 2. She says Boaz is going to be on the, on the threshing floor as he winnows the barley. And so that worked right into Naomi's plan. And here is her plan. Take a sip of water. Probably should take a Tylenol too at the same time when you see her plan. <laughs> so Ruth, this is what I want you to do. So you're all dressed up. You've got perfume on. You've washed yourself. Now, go down to the threshing floor at the end of verse 3. But don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. All right, so, so what she's saying is, I want you to go to the threshing floor, and I want you to stand, lurk even, in the shadows, watching Boaz as he eats and drinks and celebrates the harvest. But, but you, don't, you, don't, you don't talk to him yet. I want you to, to stay there. Don't let him know you're there until he's done eating and drinking. Don't, don't walk up to him in the middle of all his friends, all of his employees, as he's doing hard work, and be like, we need to talk about the status of our relationship. Don't do that. Stay in the shadows. Let him finish eating. Let him finish drinking. And when he is done, verse 4, he'll lie down. The key piece of advice that Naomi gives to Ruth is right here. He will lie down. Note the place where he lies. Why? Because Boaz is not going to be the only one there protecting his grain. And there is no amount of time or depth of darkness that will ever help Ruth recover from the humiliation that will be hers if she approaches the wrong dude in the middle of the night. So Naomi says, open your eyes, watch him, see where he's lying down. Then when he lies down, go and uncover his feet. Okay. Um... That's an interesting approach. So let's say I have a, a daughter who's in college. Let's say my daughter calls me and says, Dad, I'm having boy troubles. This call has not happened. Do not lie about what I'm saying. Okay? Just going to make that clear. I'm having boy troubles, Dad. I'm not sure what to do. I have this guy I like, and he's just, he just won't commit to anything. Baby girl, this is what I want you to do. I want you to um, leave your dorm, and I want you to go to the boy's dorm, wait till it's dark, Okay, wait till he falls asleep, and I want you to sneak into his room and uncover his feet, and then lie down. 
Here's the worst part. <laughs> then, verse 4, go uncover his feet, lie down, and what will happen? He will tell you what to do. That's what we're afraid of. <laughs> Being honest. <laughs> so let's be clear. There are some significant inappropriate overtones to that advice that Naomi's giving Ruth. Um, there, there is some um, very implicit, almost explicit sexual overtones to this. And there's two reasons. First of all is this. The threshing floor at the time of harvest, during the time that they would um, thresh the, the grain, really was actually kind of like our t- today's version of the red light district. See, when that happened, when they would thresh the grain, many prostitutes would make their way to the threshing floor because at the threshing floor, you would have the cover of night. You'd have men who had worked really hard and were tired. You'd have men who had eaten well, who were probably slightly inebriated, and they were surrounded by the resources to pay for next to anything. And so prostitutes often would take advantage of that. And so that is one of the things that would happen on the threshing floor that night. Another reason that there are such overtones um, of a sexual nature, is that the, the phrase to uncover someone's feet um, is used elsewhere as a sexual euphemism. And so to use that phrase could very easily be, in fact, in places it is um, a sexual euphemism. Now, understand this. Just because it is in other places used as a sexual euphemism does not mean in this context that it's used that way. It's not always the exact same. And some people are like, well, that may, how do you figure it out? It's hard. You figure it out by the context. So let me explain one in English. Run. To run means to pick up your feet and put them down as fast as you can. Unless you're talking about a faucet. If you're talking about a faucet, run means to have water leave the faucet. Or if you talk about a refrigerator, that means to run with the provided electricity to cause cooling for the, the things that are within your refrigerator. Or it means your nose. I don't need to describe that. Okay? The word run can mean all of those things. It's the same word, but it's driven by the context. And so as we understand this phrase to uncover someone's feet, based on this context, I would contend that nothing sexual happened. And I'll explain that as we go through, because you're going to see nothing but integrity arise from this situation. So Naomi's advice and counsel to Ruth is, I want you to head to the threshing floor, under the cover of darkness, be all dolled up, be all smelling good, having bathed and wearing your nicest outfit. I want you to sneak to Boaz. Nobody else sees you. Uncover him. He'll tell you what to do. Is that appropriate? No. But it's in the Bible. So if it says it in the Bible, then it's okay, right? Um, Don't mistake the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. This would be descriptive, as would the story of David and Bathsheba. Not prescriptive, descriptive. As would the verse that talks about Judas, who hung himself. We're not being told to follow in Judas's footsteps. We're just being explained to what Judas actually did. So, so th- this is not appropriate. In fact, the, 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 and I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but let me just hit this real quick. The, the principle that should be over all of us within situations like this, within situations that are a little sketchy and a little on the edge, the, the, the principle that should guard us, I, I love Proverbs 27, verse 12. Proverbs 27, verse 12 says, The wise man sees evil coming and hides himself. 
The simple continues on and is punished for it. So it's a matter of looking and putting yourself in a position where it's easier to do what's right than to do what is wrong. So, so, so did this cross the line? I don't know if it crossed the line. It certainly danced all over it. But, but Ruth, hearing Naomi's counsel and Naomi's plan, believes that Naomi has her best interest in mind. And so we're told that Ruth does exactly what her mother-in-law said. That's in verse 6. So verse 7, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, like a ninja, <laughs> and she uncovered his feet, and she lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. That may be one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture. He turned, there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. Now, full disclosure, my wife can wake me up in the middle of the night and I'll respond the exact same way. Who are you? It's your wife. Okay. And some of you are just like that, so I don't feel bad saying that. But for Boaz, this is going to be a little freaky. He's asleep. Somebody's uncovered his feet. I don't know if his toes get cold or, or, or what happens, but, but something startles him. He wakes up. Who are you? And Ruth says, I'm your servant, uh, Ruth, she says. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you're a guardian redeemer of our family. So, what Ruth basically says is this. Will you marry me? Um... It's fascinating. He talks about spreading the corner of your garment over me. The picture is, would you, would you um, take your coat and just, if you put it over my shoulders, you put it over, that, that is you claiming me as your bride-to-be. It still occurs today in many Arab cultures. So dudes, when we, 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 right now, we live in a, in a culture where how you ask the girl to marry you is almost as important as the actual wedding ceremony. So, so may I propose to you a suggestion straight from Ruth. Go out in the middle of a field... Romantic dinner brought to you, little table set up, candelabras, a few candles. Get a buddy or two who can play music, just to kind of be in the distance, playing a little. Um, make sure it's her favorite meal, her favorite flowers, her favorite song plays, so leave the table. Go out into the field and dance in the field, right? I mean, that's picturesque. Laugh, make sure you laugh. Bring her back to the table and pull her chair out. Push her chair in for her. Then grab your coat and put it over and like, gotcha! That is the new way to propose. <laughs> Says what, what happens here is Ruth's like, listen, Boaz, it's me, it's your servant Ruth, but would you, would you cover me, please? Would you please cover me? Now, how is Boaz going to respond to that? I mean, there's so much here that breaks with culture of the time. Forget our culture, but even the culture of Boaz himself. I mean, you've got a woman proposing to a man. You have a younger person proposing to an older person. You have a worker proposing to a boss. And big enough, beyond all of that, you have a foreigner proposing to an Israelite. And not just any Israelite, but an Israelite with some prominence. Boaz responds in verse 10. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. 
<laughs> man, you, you have not run after the younger men, whether they're rich or poor. This is, this is really kind of funny. You, you've got Boaz who's just awakened out of his sleep, like, who is it, Ruth? Huh? Okay, huh? and then she proposes to him, and his initial response is he is dumbfounded and amazed that Ruth would show interest in him, a seemingly older, goofy dude. What? what? Wait, me? Me? I mean, I have a unibrow. I wear socks with sandals. I got, I got no six-pack. The whole cooler's going on here. And, and yet, me? Man, you were out of my league. How did this happen? I mean, you, you get that sense that he's just, he's shocked out of what's happening. He doesn't understand what's going on. I, I, thought, I thought there was a, I, I, oh, all right. Well, you didn't run after any of the younger guys, no matter how rich or poor they were. You picked me. So, yeah. Okay? Uh, verse 11. Now, my, 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 you get the sense at verse 11, between 10 and 11, that as, as Boaz is trying to process these things, that he senses Ruth is getting nervous. Like, oops, I said too much. Because she actually did say too much, didn't she? I mean, think back to Naomi's counsel. You go. You uncover his feet. You lie down. He'll tell you what to do next. Ruth got a little over her skis just a little bit. She went, she snuck, she lay down, she uncovered his feet. He woke up and she's like, it's Ruth, marry me. And so as he's responding, you get the sense that she's getting a little bit afraid because he comforts her. My, my daughter, verse 11, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know you're a woman of noble character. We all know that you are that Woman, this is the same word that's used in Proverbs 31.10, that beautiful passage that talks about the Proverbs woman. Proverbs 31.10 says, a wife of noble character who can find she is worth more than rubies. We talked last week about what biblical, biblical masculinity is. It's using your strengths, your abilities, your gifts, your talents, your opportunities, your relationships, even your weaknesses to serve those people within your sphere of influence. That's biblical masculinity. Well, here we get the picture of biblical femininity. Because in Proverbs 31, it talks about that some of the highlights, some of these ladies who are of noble character are, are ladies who, who, when they cook food, it feels like it came from overseas. Who, who invests and handles money well. Some women work with the sewing machine like a boss. And, 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 and the, the picture of a noble wife is the biblical femininity. It's the picture of the woman who uses her gifts and talents and abilities and opportunities and relationships to serve those people within the sphere of her influence. For a wife and for a mom in that sphere of influence, it is her husband and her children. Don't get offended by that because in biblical masculinity, in a husband, the sphere of influence, who he's supposed to serve is his wife and his children. Boaz says, I know you're of noble character. This is what I've seen in you from the very beginning. Chapter two, he actually says the same thing to her. And Boaz says, listen, I'm going to do exactly what you have asked me to do. I, I can't believe it. I'm, 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 I'm like way over myself here. I don't understand how this is possibly happening. I am out of my league. You should not have any interest in me. I will do whatever you have asked me to do. I mean, if you stop right there, you get the sense, and you haven't read the rest of Ruth, <laughs> you get the sense that at this moment, suddenly the next verse is just going to be wedding bells. Who am I going to get my bridal party? Where are we going to go on the honeymoon? But every good story has one good twist. 
Ruth, I will do whatever I can. I will do what you ask. However, verse 12, it is true. Though I am a guardian redeemer, there's another who is more closely related than I am. Bum, bum, bum. There's another man. Boaz recognizes the fact that he doesn't have claim to Ruth. Somebody else does. And I think too often, many of us having had that uh, occur, that thought occur to us, we would realize and think, you know, God's plan, it's, it's flawed. And so Boaz concocts his own plan in order to make sure that nobody else knows about this other man. He kind of pretends like that other guy's there. And, and honestly, it's dark and they're on the threshing floor and the, and, and the wedding, the marriage could be consummated right there. And then that guy would never be any of the wiser. He would have no idea it ever happened. But Boaz, because he is a man of integrity, says love, no love. Feelings, no feelings. I'm going with integrity. There's another guy who gets a chance first. His integrity before God. God demands that he gets the first pick. No, but love says, logic says, common sense, my feelings say I, stop. You're not God. I think one of the things we need to catch in the story of Ruth is something that is missed by almost everybody the first time through. Verse 12 tells us something incredibly important about this. Boaz isn't the nearest redeemer. You know what that means? He has no obligation whatsoever to redeem Ruth. None. Because there's another. That makes the story so much better. As though he has no obligation, no responsibility to do it, he chooses to. That's what makes the story good. Redemption isn't about legalities. Redemption is about grace. A love for Ruth that isn't demanded or obligatory. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It's based on nothing but Boaz's character. Now, talking about Boaz's character, you look at 13, you, you get the sense of it. This, this is why I love Boaz so much, because I can identify with this. You hear this, well, at least this is what I hear in his voice. Um, you hear in verse 13, listen, okay, listen, um, all right, there's another one. He's more closely related. Okay, you stay here for the night. In, in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, then good, let him redeem you. But, but if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Just lie down until morning. And I'm guessing Boaz didn't sleep a whole lot that night. And actually, it's a very gracious thing of him to not send Ruth back to Naomi at that time. Because Ruth, remember, has come all dolled up, all dressed up, all perfumed up. And he's not going to send her into the streets in the middle of the night where the workers from the threshing floors from all around town are, 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 are carousing through the streets, slightly inebriated. There's no telling what could happen to Ruth. So he, he keeps her with him and says, you just lie down in the morning. We'll figure this out in the morning. And so she, verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning, but she got up before anyone could be recognized. So before before the sun actually rises, she's up, he's up. I'm guessing Boaz is freaking out a little bit. And it's just before daybreak and she's getting ready to go. And he says, no, Ruth, hold on. Come here, come here, come here, come here. Ruth comes back in verse 15. He says, bring me the shawl that you were wearing and just hold it out for me. And she did. And he poured into it six measures of barley. And then he placed the bundle upon her. So why did he place the bundle upon her? Because it was heavy. 
Again, all numbers, when it comes to weight and stuff, I try to go super conservative so that at the very least I'm underestimating what is there because I have a tendency as a preacher storyteller to over-exaggerate things. I know that may surprise you. When I talk about my long flowing blonde hair, it comes to mind. But conservatively speaking, six measures of barley would have weighed around 70 pounds. And so he takes 70 pounds and he puts it up on Ruth. And Ruth, she can carry weight. So she, she gets this thing put upon her and he sends her on her way. And it says, he goes back to town. You go home, I'm going to go take care of this. Let me bless you, let me provide for you, here you go. Let me go take care of business. You, you go home. And so Ruth makes her way back home, and and you know Naomi is losing her mind at home trying to figure out what happened. I mean, you, you hear her, so, how'd it go? Was he a gentleman? Did he talk about himself? Are you married or what? I mean, you get the sense from Naomi, she's freaking out. So Ruth comes to her mother-in-law in verse 16, sorry, verse 16, there we go, and she says, how'd it go, my daughter? And Ruth just goes through and tells her everything that Boaz did. She's like, listen, this is amazing. So I saw, I saw where he laid down, and I waited, and somebody stirred, and I was like, oh, I'm not going to go yet. And then they stopped, and then I'm like, oh, I'm going to go. And she went, and I uncovered his feet, and, and, and the guy didn't wake up. It was crazy. So I started tickling his feet just to see if he'd wake up. So suddenly, all of a sudden, Boaz is like, Ruth, ah, who are you? Ah! And I said, Ruth. And I know I wasn't supposed to say anything, but then I said, ah, I'm Ruth. Marry me. I know that wasn't the plan, but you're not going to believe it. His mind was blown. He thought I wouldn't be interested in him. I mean, who wouldn't be interested in Boaz? He said he would take care of it. He said he would take care of it today. And you can see Naomi's face as Ruth is telling her the story. just like, oh. And then Ruth says, oh, wait, 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 one more thing. Verse 17, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Two things. Thing one, young dudes, brilliant. You take that young lady out, you buy an extra cheesecake. You say, here, you bring this home to your mama. You can't lose. Boaz knows what he's doing. (laughs) Second thing. Did you catch what he said? Go back to your mother-in-law, but don't go what? Empty-handed. You remember the cry of Naomi's heart at the end of chapter 1? And I left full and God emptied me. The boy is saying, listen, listen, mama, mama, I got you too. I'll take care of you. We're going to be okay. God placed me in your life. It may take some time, but I'm on it. Um, I, I find verse 18 to be filled um, with, with um, what you would expect of a young lady who's madly in love and she is waiting for, for the man who's going to marry her to show up at any time. And you've got that enthusiasm and she's got to be skipping around the house like, hey, when's he coming, when's he coming? And Naomi's like, no, stop, wait, 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 my daughter, wait, relax, sit down. 
Wait until you find out what happens. Don't get ahead of yourself. Wait. The man will not rest until this matter is settled today. Ruth, sit down. I know you're excited. Breathe. (laughs) There's absolutely nothing more that you can do. Your redemption is now in the hands of Boaz. And he'll do the rest. So, I think, as I studied this out, the thing that surprisingly stood out to me the most was that. Wait. We stink at waiting. We hate waiting. Gotta be something else I can do. I gotta do something. And, and I'm gonna be honest with you, I am probably the worst in the room. I, 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 I am not good at waiting. When something needs to be, I, I wait, wait, wait. And what, what, what God's message to Ruth, to Naomi, and to us today is this. God is faithfully loving and providentially caring for his people at all times, even when we have to wait. It's, it's not hard to see the gospel in this, is it? I mean, Ruth goes to Boaz and says, okay, I know you can, but will you redeem me? Will you redeem me? We go to Jesus the same way. I know you can, but I know who I am. Would you have me? And Boaz goes to work for Ruth, tells her, okay, go home, you sit, you wait, there's nothing you can do, I'm going to take care of it. And in the same way, when we run to Jesus and ask him to redeem us, he responds by pointing to the work he's already done for us. He lived perfectly so that he could be the spotless substitute for us on the cross. And he proved all of his claims were true and that his offering on our behalf was enough by rising from the dead. See, Jesus has done all the work for us in our redemption. We can trust in it. We can live our lives in the midst of that security. We can live our lives knowing full well that we are accepted in God's eyes because of the finished work of Christ, not because of anything else. That acceptance has come to us. It has been given to us, not earned by us. So so we live our lives some days, in that security, knowing that God is for us and will always be for us and we can trust him to work out all the details in our lives. So God is faithfully loving and providentially caring for his people at all times in darkness, in coincidence, in redemption. And we live in light of that redemption. It's it's a present reality. I mean, we've experienced it. We're we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. We, We stand before God forgiven not condemned. We, we have no condemnation in Christ, so we, we stand there. But however, that redemption that we've experienced already in Jesus today, right now, while we're breathing, is just a small whisper of what our redemption will look like one day. That, that one day. And so what we're doing in the meantime is waiting, just like Ruth, back at the house, waiting for the greatest Boaz to return. 
We're, we're waiting for Boaz, our Boaz, our Jesus, to come for us like a groom who comes swooping in to take his bride away to the greatest wedding ceremony ever. And as we wait, we tend to wait with fear and anxiety, don't we? We're not alone. See, Jesus says this to his disciples in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. See, see, we we wait, but we tend to wait with great anxiety and in fear and in worry. We shouldn't. We should wait with hope. Not, not oh, I hope so. That's not the hope. We, hope we, we, we wait with this confident expectation that it's going to happen soon, that, that someday we are going to see Jesus face to face. See, we wait that. And when that happens, it is not going to be a quiet event. I know it surprises you. I think I'm going to be rather boisterous when I get the opportunity to see my Savior face to face. Because in that moment, I'm not going to have to bear the scars of sin. I'm not longer going to have to be shackled by my imperfections and my inabilities. My eyes are going to be filled with the sight of the one who is indescribable, unimaginable, omnipotent, and awesome. So So, so here's, here's how I want to end. We will, when we see him like that, we are going to worship him like we have never worshiped him before because our lungs are going to be filled with an oxygen we have never tasted before. So our song will be sung, and I praise God for this, <laughs> with an enthusiasm that is no longer limited by my inability in music. My song will be loud, significant, and so short of the goal that I'll have to make much of him. And so as we wait, you know what we should be doing? Rehearsing for that moment. And that's how we want to close this morning. We want to live in light of God's love and his care and his provision for us. We want to be reminded of the confident expectation we have that we will see him face to face and what that will look like. So I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing. And you know what? may not be pretty, but it's going to make much of Christ. So let's make that our goal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these wonderful people who sit before me every week who, who love you and, and, and love me. God, I thank you that someday we will all be in your presence. If we're in Christ, we'll be in your presence and have the opportunity to sing songs like the ones we're about to try. <laughs> and God, it will be, it'll be amazing. It'll be something like we've never heard because God, you deserve more than we could ever give right now. So Father, I pray that as our voices, our lips, our hearts are united with those people from all ages who are in Jesus Christ, that, that, that even now as we sing, that would be on our mind, remembering that in heaven this will be glorious because you're worth it. You're worthy and all praise belongs to you and is yours. God, I pray that we would be driven and empowered by the Holy Spirit even now as we sing to you. 
shepherds. In Jesus' good name I pray, amen.